Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This discussion is going to be on Helaman chapter 3. So now the um, we know that the Nephites have destroyed the Lamanites. There's been a, a uh, in Helaman 2, there was a, a group of Gadianton robbers that had begun to uh, try to kill the judgment, the person in the judgment seat, uh, the chief judge. And so that was thwarted by the servant of Helaman. And so now we're going to get into third, third Helaman and talk about uh, some of the things that are going on here. Chapter 3 of Helaman, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 40 and 3rd year, so this is 49 BC, of the reign of the judges, that there was no contention among the people of Nephi, save it were a little pride which was in the church, which did cause some little dissension among the people, which affairs were settled in the ending of the 40 and 3rd year. So we know the, the, how bad pride is, and we've heard lots of talks about it. President Benson gave a talk a number of years ago on, on the evils of pride. I just want to quote a couple of things here from um, C.S. Lewis. He says, Pride is an attitude that commences with personal comparisons with others and leads to demeaning thoughts or oppressive actions directed at others, sons, at other sons and daughters of God. The pride of self-satisfaction imposes its primary effects upon the one who is proud. His attitude blocks his own progress. In contrast, the pride of comparison is pernicious because it is of its tendency to the oppression of others. C.S. Lewis described the pride of comparison when he said pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Lewis called pride the utmost evil and the complete anti-God state of mind because this kind of comparison leads men to enmity and oppression and every other kind of evil. This insightful Christian saw that every person should look up, look up to God as immeasurably superior to him or her. He continued, unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing, in comparison you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Uh, verse 2, and there, were no, there was no contention among the people in the 40 and 4th year, neither was there much contention in the 40 and 5th year. And it came to pass in the 40 and 6th year, yea, there was much contention and much dissent and many dissensions in the which there were, there were an exceedingly great many who departed out of the land of Zarahemla and went forth into the land northward to inherit the land. There were some who didn't like the contention, so they left to the land north. According to Joseph Smith, the land northward refers to North America. Verse 4, and they did travel to an exceedingly great distance, insomuch that they came to large bodies of water and many rivers. Hugh Nibley said the great northern migration was a massive drift of population, Nephite and Lamanite alike, to lands far to the north. In the same year in which Hagoth sent off his first great ship to the north, a company of 5,400 men with their wives and their children departed out of the land of Zarahemla into the land which was northward. This was but the beginning of a continuing trend of large-scale migration into the north countries. Because of troubles and dissension, a really great movement took place a few years later 
when an exceedingly great many went forth unto the land northward to inherit the land, and they did travel to an exceedingly great distance, insomuch that they came to large bodies of water and many rivers. This is obviously not to be confused with the northern land of lakes from which Moroni uh, barred access to the people of Morianton in a relatively small-scale military action. When distance is described as exceedingly great by a people to whom long marches and strenuous campaigns in the wilderness were the established rule, we can be sure that it was at least the equivalent of the migrations of some of our Indian tribes in modern times, which sometimes ran to thousands of miles. Once the Book of Mormon people break out of the land of Zarahemla, there is no telling how far they go, since they have all the time in the world. We have no right to limit their wanderings and settlements by our own standards of foot travel. So we think that maybe the Nephites and Lamanites ended up in North America. Um, but uh, again, we don't know the geography of, the, of, the, of where, where the Nephites and Lamanites went. Um, but it sounds like they're trying to at least get away from, from the fighting and, and uh, the attacking of both Nephites and Lamanites. Verse 5, Yea, and even they did spread forth into all parts of the land, into whatsoever parts it had not been rendered desolate and without timber because of the many inhabitants who had before inherited the land. Um, Brother Nibley believes that there may have been others on the American continent besides the Jaredites and the Nephites. Uh, there's a couple of places where it kind of gives evidence to that, but uh, we won't get into that right now. Verse 6, And now no part of the land was desolate, save it were for timber, but because of the greatness of the destruction of the people who had, been before inhabit, who had before inhabited the land, it was called desolate. And there being but little timber upon the face of the land, nevertheless the people who went forth became exceedingly expert in the working of cement. Therefore they did build houses of cement in the which they did dwell. While this is not significant doctrinally, it does give an, an additional external evidence of the truthfulness of the book, since Joseph Smith could not have been aware as a result of his own intellect and learning of this important item that has since been substantiated by modern scientific findings. That was by Millet McConkie. The Book of Mormon dates this significant technological advance to the year 46 BC. Recent research shows that cement was in fact extensively used in Mesoamerica beginning largely at that time. One of the most notable uses of cement is in the temple complex at Teotihuacan, north of present-day Mexico City. I know I didn't say that right. Uh, you try it. According to David S. Hyman, the structural use of cement appears suddenly in the archaeological record. Its earliest sample is a fully developed product. The cement floor slabs at this site were remarkably high in structural quality. Although exposed to the elements for nearly 2,000 years, they still exceed many present-day building code requirements. After its discovery, cement was used at many sites in the Valley of Mexico and in the Maya regions of southern Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. It was used in the construction of buildings of such sites as Cerro de Tex Texcoatzingo, Tula, Palenque, Tikal, Copan, Uxmal, and Chichen Itza. That's easy for you to say. Mesoamerican cement was almost exclusively lime cement. The limestone was purified on a cylindrical pile of timber, which requires a vast amount of lumber to cut and considerable skill to construct in such a way that combustion of the stone and wood is complete and a minimum of impurities remain in the project, product. The fact that very little carbon is found in this cement attests to the ability of these ancient peoples. John Sorensen further noted that the expert sophistication in the use of cement at El Tajin, east of Mexico City, after Book of Mormon times. Cement roofs 
covered areas of 75 square meters. Sometimes the builders filled a room with stones and mud, smoothed the surface on top to receive the concrete, then removed the interior fill when the slab on top had dried. The presence of expert cement technology in pre-Hispanic Mesoamerica is a remarkable archaeological fact, inviting much further research. Cement seems to take on significant roles in Mesoamerican architecture, close to the time when the Book of Mormon says this development occurred, and that was by John Welch. Verse 8, And it came to pass that they did multiply and spread, and did go forth from the land southward to the land northward, and did spread insomuch that they began to cover the face of the whole earth from the sea south to the sea north, from the sea west to the sea east. It tells us here there was a sea to the north and to the south, as well as to the east and the west. And of course, that can only be found in one region, that's Central America. And that was by Hugh Nibley. Here it would be proper to dispel what I regard as a misapprehension of the extent of Nephite occupancy of the North Continent at this period of Nephite history from the fact that in the foregoing quotation it is said that the Nephites removing from Zarahemla traveled to an exceeding great distance, insomuch that they came to large bodies of water and many rivers. Some have supposed that the Nephites at this time extended their colonization movements as far north as the Great Lakes in the eastern part of North America, and from the fact that it is also said that they began to cover the face of the whole earth from the sea south to the sea north, from the sea west to the sea east. It has been supposed that these expressions meant to convey the idea that the Nephites at this time had extended their settlements over both continents, and that from the sea south to the sea north meant from the sea at the southern extremity of South America, south of Cape Horn, to the Arctic Ocean, north of, north of North America. There is no evidence, however, in the Book of Mormon that warrants such a conclusion as to the extent of Nephite occupancy of the Western Hemisphere in 46 BC. Allowance for hyperbole must be made in the expression. They began to, to cover the face of the whole earth since the facts set forth in the whole history of the Nephites in the Book of Mormon are against the reasonableness of such an expression if taken literally. Uh, as I mentioned, that was uh, that was B.H. Roberts that said that. So there's conflicting uh, opinions on how far north they went. Uh, you can pick the one you like the best. Verse nine: and The people who were in the land in the land northward did dwell in tents and in houses of cement, and they did suffer whatsoever tree should spring up upon the face of the land that it should grow up. So they were conservationists that in time they might have timber to build their houses, yea, their cities and their temples and their synagogues and their sanctuaries and all manner of their buildings. And it came to pass as timber was exceedingly scarce in the land northward, they did send forth much by the way of shipping. And thus they did enable the people in the land northward that they might build many cities, both of wood and of cement. And it came to pass that there were many of the people of Ammon, who were the Lamanites by birth, did also go forth into this land. They probably were tired of fighting too. And now there were many records kept of the proceedings of this people by many of this people, which are particular and very large concerning them. Remember that uh, it was mentioned that the plates that they observed in the cave, uh, that they were stacked high along the walls and on the table and all over the place. So there were lots and lots of records. Uh, verse 14, but behold, a hundredth part of the proceedings of this people, yea, the account of the Lamanites and, and of the Nephites and their wars and contentions and dissensions and their preaching and their prophecies and their shipping and their building of ships and their building of temples and of synagogues and their sanctuaries and their righteousness and their wickedness and their murders and their robbings and their plundering and all manner of abominations and whoredoms cannot be contained in this work. But behold, there are many books and many records of every kind, and they have been kept chiefly, not entirely by the Nephites. 
Brigham Young tells the story. Oliver Cowdery went with Prophet Joseph Smith when he deposited these plates. When Joseph got the plates, the angel instructed him to carry them back to the hill Cumorah, which he did. Oliver says that when Joseph and Oliver went there, the hill opened, and they walked into a cave in which there was a large and spacious room. He says he did not think at the time whether they had the light of the sun or artificial light, but that it was just as light as day. They laid the plates on a table. It was a large table that stood in the room. Under this table were, there were a pile. There was a pile of plates as much as two feet high, and they were and there were a lot and there were altogether in this room more plates than probably many wagon loads. They were piled up in the corners and along the walls. The first time they went there, the sword of Laban hung upon the wall. But when they went again, it had been taken down and laid upon the table across the gold plates. It was unsheathed, and on it was written these words, This sword will never be sheathed again until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. And that was by Brigham Young. Verse 16, And they have been handed down from one generation to another by the Nephites, even until they have fallen into transgression and have been murdered, plundered and hunted and driven forth and slain and scattered upon the face of the earth and mixed with the Lamanites until, until they are no more called the Nephites, becoming wicked and wild and ferocious, yea, even becoming Lamanites. They were so mixed that today you can't say that an Indian is a Lamanite or a Nephite. Verse 17, And now I return again to mine account. Therefore, what I have spoken, I had passed after there had been great contentions and disturbances and wars and dissensions among the people of Nephi. The forty and sixth year of the reign of the judges ended, and it came to pass that there were still great contention in the land, yea, even in the forty and seventh year, and also in the forty and eighth year. Nevertheless, Helaman did fill the judgment seat with justice and equity, yea, he did observe to keep the statutes and the judgments and the commandments of God, and he did do that which was right in the sight of God continually, and he did walk after the ways of his father, insomuch that he did prosper in the land. And it came to pass that he had two sons. He gave unto the eldest the name of Nephi, and unto the youngest the name of Lehi, and they began to grow up unto the Lord. This growth to the Lord is a process, spiritual maturity. In the dedicatory prayer to the Kirtland Temple, Joseph Smith prayed, and that they may grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost and be organized according to thy laws and be prepared to obtain every needful thing. And so these two boys, Nephi and Lehi, are going to grow up according to the commandments of God and doing the things they're supposed to, like we should. Verse 22, And it came to pass that the wars and contentions began to cease in a small degree among the people of the Nephites in the latter end of the 40 and 8th year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. I wonder if that's because most everybody's moved away. And it came to pass in the 40 and 9th year of the reign of the judges that there was continual peace established in the land, all save it were the secret combinations, which Gadianton the robber had established in the more settled parts of the land, which at that time were not known unto those who were at the head of government, therefore they were not destroyed out of the land. And it came to pass in this same year there was exceedingly great prosperity or growth in the church. The context of this prosperity makes it clearly spiritual in nature and linked to the blessings of the church membership resulting from faithfulness. It is important that we think that we not think of prosperity only in terms of material gain. And that was by Millet McConkie. Continuing verse 24, insomuch that there were thousands who did join themselves unto the church and were baptized unto repentance. We shouldn't be proud that the church is growing so fast. Verse 25, And so great was the prosperity of the church, and so many of the blessings which were poured out upon the people, that even the high priests and the teachers were themselves astonished beyond measure. Hugh Nibley said um, that there's no real reason for it that you can explain except that it's the work of the Lord. It's happening in the strangest places where you'd never expect it. Very strange places. <clears throat> this statement mirrors 
similar statements of modern church leaders concerning this, the current astonishing growth of the church. Perhaps this period of time is just the Nephite fulfillment of the Lord's revelation to Habakkuk in the Old Testament, one that, that may have multiple fulfillments, not only in ancient Israel, but also among the Nephites, the modern church, and in years yet to come, where God said, I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. And that was again by Millet McConkie. Verse 26, And it came to pass that the work of the Lord did prosper unto the baptizing and uniting to the church of, of God many souls, even tens of thousands. Thus we see, so here's Mormon again, telling us what the story means, that the Lord is merciful unto all who will, in the sincerity of their hearts, call upon his holy name. Yea, thus we see that the gate of heaven is open unto all, even to those who will believe on the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Yea, we see that whosoever will, will may lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked, and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven, to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob and with all our holy fathers to go no more out. See, that's solid security, to sit down and never have to go out again. This is very vivid imagery here. This is what atonement is, home at last, at one to be one, united with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was by Hugh Nibley. Verse 31, And in this year there was continual rejoicing in the land of Zarahemla, and in all the regions round about, even in all the land which was possessed by the Nephites. And it came to pass that there was peace and exceedingly great joy in the remainder of the forty and ninth year, yea, and also there was continual peace and great joy in the fifty fiftieth year of the reign of the judges. And in the fifty and first year, so now we're at about 41 BC, of the reign of the judges, there was peace also, save it were the pride which began to enter into the church, not into the church of God, but into the hearts of the people who professed to belong to the church of God. Hugh Nibley said there are two churches. There are the people who profess it, and the people who really are. They all profess to belong to the church of God, but how do you distinguish? Well, as Paul says, our security rests in this. God knows his own, only he knows the ones who are true Latter-day Saints and those who aren't. We have no means of knowing. You'd be surprised what rascals there are among us and what good people there are among us too. You never, you, but you never suspect. Patriarch Hoagland from Southern California was an inspired patriarch my mother knew very well. He went with one of the brethren to a conference in southern Utah to excommunicate a member who had acquired the disfavor of the community. He smoked and he drank and he swore some so they didn't want him in their, in their society. They were going to excommunicate him. The night before the conference, Brother Hoagland had a vision. It was a dream. He said he found himself in a timeless world. He found himself in a conference in the other world and there was great excitement. There was a great throng of people there and he noticed presidents of the church in the throng and former apostles. There was an air of great expectancy, and he wondered, what are, the, what are the people so excited about? They said, well, the Savior is going to drop in on us today. The Lord is going to be here, and wow, we, he was so excited. Under great tension, they all stood up, and there were two chairs on the stand. The Lord came in, and with him sh should come to sit on the other chair, except the bum they were going to cut off from the church. He was the one who sat down by the Savior side by side. Well, that was a lesson to him. He immediately started to look into things. It seems that this man who had broken the word of wisdom had always been kind to the poor. He shared everything he had with them. If there was a widow who needed help, he would do everything to help her, etc. But he was doing it quietly, and he was always helping. If they needed extra work on the farm, he'd go out and work from for them. That's the sort of man he was, but he swore. People who have been known to swear in Dixie 
and he smoked. People have been known to smoke in Dixie, too, but that wasn't what counted. And that was, again, by Hugh Nibley. Hugh Nibley always has good stories to tell. Verse 34, And they were lifted up in pride, even to the persecution of many of their brethren. Pride and persecution of others are sins in and of themselves, but Mormon describes the pride resultant persecution as a great evil because it was saint against saint persecution. It was coming from those who knew the gospel and had, and had been enlightened and prospered by it. Their knowledge increased their accountability and made their pride-induced persecution <clears throat> of their fellow church members an even greater evil that would produce a great condemnation. <clears throat> and that was by Millet McConkie. Glad that that doesn't happen in our church today. <clears throat> I hope. <clears throat> Continuing verse 34. Now this was a great evil which did cause the more humble part of the people to suffer great persecutions and to wade through much affliction. Nevertheless, they, the more humble members of the church, did fast and pray oft and did wax or grow stronger and stronger in their humility and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ unto the filling their souls with joy and consolation, yea, even to the purifying and the sanctification of their hearts. It looks like the opposition sanctified them. Yielding our hearts to God sanctifies us, which sanctification cometh because of their yielding their hearts unto God. Henry B. Eyring said, Yield your heart unto God. Ask him what it is he would have you do. Know that he will have prepared a way for you to do it, even under great difficulties. Ask him how he would have you share what you have with others, and you will feel his love. He lives and he loves you. He wants you to come home again. President Benson said, those who turn their lives over to God will find out that he can make a lot more out of their lives than they can. He will deepen their joys, expand their vision, quicken their minds, strengthen their muscles, lift their spirits, multiply their blessings, increase their opportunities, comfort their souls, raise up friends, and pour out peace. Who wouldn't want that? Elder Maxwell said, giving place in our souls and in our schedules, making room for God's words and work requires intellectual submissiveness. It requires us to be responsive to all entreaties from the Lord rather than being dependent upon thunderbolts to move us or upon being commanded in all things. Submission requires sufficient dedication and perspiration to try the experiment of his gospel's goodness to begin to follow him in earnest. Elder McConkie said, Truly, the Holy Ghost is a sanctifier, and the extent to which men receive and enjoy the gift of the Holy Ghost is the extent to which they are sanctified. In the lives of most of us, sanctification is an ongoing process, and we obtain that glorious status by degrees as we overcome the world and become saints in deed as well as in name. Verse 36, And it came to pass that the fifty and second year ended in peace also, save it were the exceedingly great pride which had gotten into the hearts of the people, and it was because of their exceedingly great riches and their prosperity in the land, and it did grow upon them from day to day. And it came to pass in the fifty and third year, 39 B.C., of the reign of the judges, Helaman died, and his eldest son Nephi began to reign in his stead. And it came to pass that he did fill the judgment seat with justice and equity, yea, he did keep the commandments of God, and did walk in the ways of his father. I bear testimony that these things are true, and do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Come back for the next one. It'll be Helaman chapter 4. I know you're looking forward to it.